I'm going to read this quote to you that's at the top of your uh, handout. As in the days of old, so now our message to the non-Christian world must be the same, that God cares. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 13 in a minute, but first I want to touch on this idea of God caring. You guys, we have been put in the midst of a broken world full of broken people that have hurts and needs that need to be met. And in the midst of that, they need to know not just a lot of knowledge, but they need to know that God cares, cares for their hurts, cares about their brokenness, cares about their needs. And we've been placed here to take that news to this world. So once you're at uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, just follow along with me. When Jesus had finished these parables... He moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown... And in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Let's pray. God, this morning as we come before you, as we come and open your word, God, would you allow it to take root in our hearts? God, would it settle in there? Would it challenge us, God? Speak to us. Motivate us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. But God, ultimately that would rest in our hearts and it would change who we are. Lord God, we thank you for your word and what it does for us, that it speaks clearly your truth. So God, this morning, open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes so they may, that we may fully be able to engage with you this morning, God. Would you sweep through this place with your Holy Spirit? God, and enable us to engage with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are. Matthew chapter 13, closing it out. Jesus has a homecoming. Of course, his homecoming is much like what I would consider uh, the homecoming you'd get if you're any New York sports team during a bad season. Them people out there ain't too happy with you. Try being a Jet for a season. You come home and they just never seem to be happy, never seem to be thrilled with you as a team. Jesus rolls in and he hits a few roadblocks. But before we even get there to this place where he's teaching in the synagogue and they take offense at him, I want to point out a few things. We're going to see this over and over again throughout this entire morning's uh, sermon. What this speaks to. There's a couple of things you have to take note of. One, Jesus has a hometown. I've always stated it. To me, it's very incredible that Jesus in this day and age comes out of the roots that he does. That God had the plan to give Jesus a family, that he was born a child. You've got to remember, in the area that they were, it was highly populated. It was dense. If a man would have walked into a city out of somewhere else, no one really would have noticed or cared. He could have easily walked into Jerusalem and said, hey, I'm just a new guy in town. But Jesus had roots. He had a hometown. He had a family, mother, father, brothers, sisters. It's like the holy Brady Bunch. And he has this, and it speaks to his humanity. That Jesus was indeed God in the flesh, and that flesh was real, and that flesh had limitations, and it had a place that it started. 
I mean, as he comes into this, this, the synagogue and he starts to teach, they're amazed at his teaching, but what's the problem here? Hey, wait a minute. This is Jesus from the block. You know, this is Jesus from down the street. This is the carpenter's kid. We know his family. We know this guy. Who does he think he is to come into the synagogue and start preaching with authority about the kingdom of God? Who is he? He's nobody. He comes from nothing. His own brother doesn't really believe in who he is. Guys, this creates a huge problem because it disassociates them from the message. For us, this becomes an issue, even in this day and age, in this church, in other churches, in our hearts. And I wrestle with it myself. A few weeks ago, the leaders of the church went to a summit, a leadership summit, and we sat around and we get wrapped up with packaging, and I get wrapped up with packaging. And we went to this summit, and I didn't like the way the summit was packaged. It was a little too flashy for me, a little too over the top. And I just sat at my seat, and I just started getting in this kind of mood. And it's kind of negative, sort of, I don't really like this. And I started rolling my eyes at some things, and I started making little snide remarks about, oh, great, here we go again. And, you know, I would make some jokes, and people would laugh. I was in this place of just looking at this going, I'm really not enjoying this. And I kept pushing myself further and further back until I, I tap on my shoulder and I turned around and there was my boss. And you call him Lance. And he said, dude, really? You are completely unteachable right now. You put yourself in a very negative place. And I understand it's not my favorite either. However, God is trying to teach us and lead us in this moment. And you've got to open yourself back up. So, being convicted and humbled, I sat down at my table and shut up and listened. And it was amazing. It was a great conference. I can't take away from that. But there's another side to this conflict within me. And that is, to be honest with you guys, when I prep to speak from this pulpit. Because let's face it, we have been gifted with an incredible teacher in Lance. But you guys were just a little too tempted to duck out when he's not here or not speaking. And so when it comes my turn to stand here and I'm prepping a lesson, I feel a little intimidated. Because I feel like as I prepare a message that God's giving me, my automatic assumption is, will I be discounted because I'm just the youth guy? Or I don't wear a tie on Sunday mornings. Or I have jewelry in my ears. I have some tattoos if you didn't know that already. But will I be discounted as a teacher because of these things? Because the packaging may not be what some think it needs to be. We struggle with this. I struggle with this. The reality is, though, that it's our responsibility to engage with the message as it's presented. As God speaks, we need to listen regardless of what the packaging looks like. No matter what our expectancy of the performance is, what we need to be expecting is that we're going to engage with God and He's going to speak and we're going to hear. In the midst of that, we need to set aside our performance expectations. We need to set aside ourselves. Lance spoke a few weeks ago about preparing to engage with God when we come to church on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights or whenever it is. We are going to engage with God. We must prepare our hearts so that when we come in, we're not driven by expectation of exterior. We're driven by expectation of meeting with God. You guys, this comes into context and into play in this situation because here's what Matthew writes. 
And Mark actually expands on it in his account of this. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mark in chapter 6 says he was unable to do many miracles there. That blows my mind. When you tell me Jesus was unable, that's the word, unable to do many miracles there. That's a trip. That the Spirit was stifled so much that Jesus was unable to do many miracles there. And what Mark says even just kills me more is that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Okay, when you tell me Jesus was amazed, you have got to be some faithless people to surprise Jesus. That is a serious lack of faith. Wow, I didn't see that lack of faith coming. Oh, whoa. But because they discounted the messenger and therefore cast off the message, they were unable to see Christ work. And so the question I have to inject into this discussion that has to be asked is, when we do the same, when we cast off the messenger and therefore discount the message, does that leave us in a place where we're unable to see Christ working in our lives, in our church, and in our community? I'm not fully sure, but I will say it's a question that has to be wrestled with. It's something we have to ask ourselves. With that, we're moving on. Jumping into chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, we're going to be spending time in uh, this first section, verses 1 through 12, very briefly because Lance actually touched on this when he was in chapter 11. If you remember the situation John the Baptist had sent his disciples out to engage with Jesus, ask him, hey, are you the guy? And he says, yeah, go back and tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the sick are healed. It's good stuff. So the answer in short is, yes, I'm the guy. Go tell him. So John is in his prison cell. He'd been arrested because he stood up and pointed out to Herod, hey, you're in an incestual marriage and that's bad. That's bad. Herod had him arrested. He's languishing in a jail cell because Herod is scared to kill him. Why? Because the people all consider John a prophet. So when you're someone in power, what you don't want to do is kill a prophet. Makes you highly unpopular. Not good in election season. Not really good ever. So he leaves John sitting there until one night he's being entertained by a dance. And he's very intrigued by the young woman who's dancing and then therefore offers her anything she wants. And at the urging of her mother asks for John's head on a platter. Sure, done. Knock on the cell door. Hey, John. And here comes John's head on a platter. All this, all this because John stood up for what's right. You guys, as crazy as this sounds, in our world, in our mixed up world today, there are consequences for standing up for what is right. I know it sounds insane. Well, doing the right thing has consequences. You betcha. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't think any of us are ever going to be under threat of being beheaded at the suggestion of some gyrating tartlet. (laughs) However, the reality is we will be under persecution for standing up for what's right. It's bound to happen. Now, it may not be very severe, it may be very mundane, but it could be something big. The idea is that we need not let that fear motivate us or hinder us. The Word tells us that God has given us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. That we are to engage the world and stand for what's right when God calls us to stand. 
So I just want to leave that in your minds this morning. I don't want to, like I said, spend a lot of time in this because we've got a lot of ground to cover in the next two miracles. Because we need to stand for what's right in a fearless manner. Accepting willingly the consequences that may come our way for being right before God. So now, we are going to be engaging with two of the most prominent miracles in Scripture. They're often referred to, often talked about. We're going to talk all about them this morning. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to be in Matthew. Now we're at chapter, or chapter 14, verse 13. What you're going to do is you're going to follow along or try to follow along. And I'm going to read because what I have here is uh, I took the gospel accounts. And, uh, okay, I stole them from Lance. Because <laughs> I figured why reinvent the wheel? He already had the information. I just took it from him. I have the mashed up accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John. If you guys follow along in Matthew, um, just pause wherever you, I lose you because I'm going to be off over here somewhere. You guys try to keep up. And it's a bit of a long reading, but we're going to go through the entire account of uh, Jesus feeding this large crowd. Sometime after this, Jesus sent out the twelve to preach the gospel and work miracles. When the apostles came back, they reported what they had done. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did, not, they did not even have a chance to eat. And when Jesus heard what had happened to John the Baptist being put in prison and beheaded by Herod, Jesus said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And withdrew by a boat privately and crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, to a solitary remote place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and healed their sick and began teaching them many things. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves some food and lodging. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he's going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages of a man would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Bring them here to me, Jesus said. Jesus said, have the people sit down in groups of about 50 each. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, about 5,000 of them, men, besides women and children. Jesus then took the loaves. Looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, broke the loaves, and then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted and were satisfied. He did the same with the fish. When they had all enough to eat, he said to the, his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets full with the pieces of five barley loaves and fish left over from those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Here's this situation. And what we're going to do right now 
is I'm going to introduce you to my friend. This is my friend. My friend is a loaf of bread. Of course, you're looking at me going, duh, of course you're holding a loaf of bread. But for the podcast and the radio, my friend is a loaf of bread. So what we're going to do is this is about the right size, a loaf of bread that you might find in someone's lunch pail. At this time, okay, they didn't really have pails. But they'd be carrying it around. We get this idea that they're somehow carrying around these huge French bread loaves, like two by fours, and knocking each other over. No, they're rather small loaves. So what we're going to do is we have five loaves. Rick, you have the five loaves? And we're going to start, okay, we're going to start at this end. So we're going to start at this end. And what, what Rick's going to do is he's going to hand out five loaves of bread. And what you're going to do is, as the loaf comes to you, as the loaf comes to you, you're going to take a piece. I want to make sure that we're clear about this. This is not a piece. We're not doing communion. Okay? This is lunchtime. This is dinner time. What I want you to do is take a piece. Something that you would break off when you're sitting in an Italian restaurant ready to dip it into some balsamic vinegar and olive oil. Yeah! Okay? There you go. That's what you're going to do. You're going to take a piece. And we're going to come back to that. While you guys are doing that, we're going to move on. The first thing we see in the midst of this is Jesus exiting his current situation. He's surrounded by crowds and he needs to get away. Now, there are three logical reasons for this. One, again, we see Jesus is human. He is in flesh and the flesh has limitations. He's tired, exhausted, hungry. He's just been told that his cousin has been beheaded. He gets in a boat with his 12 guys and they take off for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Two, Jesus is wise, knowing the situation with John. He's not going to run haphazardly into another situation that might bring about his demise a little too early. Better to disengage. Three, he understands that he must reconnect with God before he reconnects with men. He's searching for strength for his body and for his spirit. So they pile into the boat. They go across. They're sitting down. They're getting ready for their quiet time. He's going to hang out with the guys. Going to do a little teaching, I'm sure. But a lot of prayer, a lot of rest, just mellowing out. And as they sit down, he looks up and what does he see? A mob. A large mob. They're coming toward him. Now, at this point, I think it's amazing. We have to acknowledge that Jesus, despite the limitations of his flesh, and in my book, has every right in that flesh to look at the mob and go, Stop! No. None. No more miracles. I'm closed for the day. You guys are cut off. I'm tired. My cousin's dead. I need rest. I need to check in with the Father. Whatever it is, I'm not hanging out with all you people tonight. Sorry. You get nothing. Come back tomorrow. But instead, Jesus looks at the crowd and he said, the Bible says he was moved with compassion for them. The Greek word is spagnisnomai. means to be moved in your bowels. Not like that. <laughs> Literally in the Hebrew culture, the idea of the bowels were the seat of compassion and emotion and empathy and sympathy. And so when you looked at the situation and your heart went out to it, spagnisnomai, you were moved at the core of your being. And he looked at this crowd and he was moved that way. And the need that they presented to him was legitimate and greater than his own. And so he set himself aside and engaged with the crowd and began healing their sick, healing their lame, and engaging them with teaching and instruction. 
This is the model of ministry Jesus paints for us. That there are many points in ministry where we must set ourselves aside to meet the greater need. And so engaging with these people, Jesus paints this picture and then actually takes it a step further out within the hour. Because as we move forward, we see verse 15 where the focus shifts off the crowd that he's teaching and healing to the disciples. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can get, go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So once again, enter the disciples, clearly seeing that Jesus needs some instruction. Um, Jesus, I am not sure if you were aware, but the sun is setting. And it's evening time when the sun sets. And when it's evening time and the sun sets, it's also dinner time. These people are probably hungry. We're hungry. Why don't we send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can go and buy some food and we don't have to deal with it? What a great idea. You see, the disciples are looking at the situation and clearly Jesus needs guidance. But Jesus, being ever aware of the teaching moments his disciples wander into, has a great response. He says simply in verse 16, they don't need to go anywhere. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Why should we send them away? You give them some food. In my mind, the great picture is I see 12 guys immediately go into brain lock. What? What uh, Hold on. And they just go into complete logistical panic mode. What do we have? What's going on? Do we have enough money? No, we don't have enough money. We can't spend that much money. Ah! And I love that John sits back and John's the one writing the account of what everyone else is doing and how everyone's reacting. He's like got his little notepad. And so there's Philip and Philip's freaking about finances. And there's Andrew. And look, he's mugging some little kid for his lunch. Huh. I'm saying I'm going to save those notes. Then in the midst of this, they just go berserk and they're freaking out because they don't have enough. And then they finally, you know, Andrew steals the kid's lunch and kicks him to the side and he comes back. We have five small barley loaves and two fish. And a crying child, but don't mind him. He's fine. This is all we've got. This is all we've got. And they ask the question, but how could this go very far among so many? How can this go very far among so many? And Jesus, in the midst of this chaos, sits firmly, stands as a foundation, and simply says, bring them here to me. What do you have? Bring it here to me. You guys, that's the question Jesus asks us. What do you have? What do you have? What little do you have? And you guys, we we don't have much. And Jesus says, what do you have? Bring it here to me. I will use it. Bring it to me. And in saying that, takes the situation from impossible to possible. He injects himself, takes what the disciples have to offer, and moves the situation dynamically in a new direction. Bring it here to me. This situation for me brings up just one picture constantly. I have kids. You guys have heard me speak before. I talk a lot about my kids, for I believe that God has given them to me so that I may have analogies for sermons like this. And I have a four-year-old son. His name is Ethan. And we have Legos in our house. And I talk about the Legos quite a bit because they're our cheap man's version of therapy. I play with Legos for hours. 
And I don't have to see a psychologist. It's wonderful. So Ethan will randomly at points during the week bring to me handfuls. Now, these are not my handfuls. These are a four-year-old's handful of Legos. And he'll just go into the bucket, scoop out Legos, and he will bring them to me. And he will lay them, not at my feet, I'm not that pious. He'll lay them down beside me, and he'll say to me, Dad, I'm Dad, Dad, will you make me a super cool, fast, really big ship? And I look at the pile of Legos, and I look at him, and he's got that look on his face, that expectancy. So, of course, I'll do something, and I examine the Legos, I take inventory, and clearly these are not Legos that I would pick if I was going to build a super cool, fast, big ship. But he has this expectation that he's put it in my hands that I am capable of doing more with what he's brought to me. So I'll pull it apart and start putting it back together and make something that resembles a slow, odd, awkward, lame ship. (laughs) But I'll give it back to him. And in that moment, he's ecstatic. He's, okay, 85% of the time. He's ecstatic and pleased. The other 15% he freaks out. Like, no, that's not what I wanted. And we have to go get the buckets out. And, but in those moments where he's pleased, I'm amazed. This is where we are, you guys. Jesus engages with the situation when we hold out in our hands all that we have to offer. And we stop ourselves from saying, but this is all I have and it's worthless and it'll never be useful. And I can't do this or I can't do that because I don't have much. Jesus says, bring it here to me. And when we go, we need to go with expectancy that we put it in the hands of the Savior. And he can do incredibly much more with it than we can. And we put it in his hands. And the disciples put the loaves and the fish in his hands and he gives thanks and he breaks the bread. And here's what's great. He puts it back into the hands of the disciples. Jesus doesn't take the bread, give thanks, and then go pass it out to the people himself. He takes it from the disciples, breaks it, gives thanks, and gives it back to them and says, Now you guys give it to the people. You guys do the ministry. Jesus takes what we have to offer, multiplies it, gives it back to us, and we go engage the world with it. It's an incredible picture of ministry the way it should be. That Jesus is fully willing to let the disciples and us engage in the miracles He's performing on a day-to-day basis if we simply hold open our hands and hold open our hearts. That He would take what we have and then fill us back up to go and serve appropriately. It's an amazing concept. And it's how our relationship with Christ should look, knowing that we are called to go and serve, but that we need to present what we have to Jesus, and that we need to let Him fill us back up, and that we keep, need to keep going through that cycle over and over and over again. Our tanks get empty. We need to reconnect. If Jesus Himself needed to reconnect with the Father, so we need to reconnect so that we continue to do ministry. So he takes the loaves, puts them in the the hands of the disciples. The disciples start to feed the crowd. And this is where I want to bring into picture the miracle itself. Because the miracle itself amazes me. There are a couple different things I want to bring up. Views of this miracle. And I want to engage you with something that might stretch your mind a little bit. And we'll explain it as we go. But the first aspect of looking at this miracle, you have the blatant... On its face, multiplication of bread and fish. So, here's what I want to do. I want to check in. 
How far did our loaves get? Where did the loaves end up? Do we know who got the last piece of the loaves? So uh, it, how many of you guys got bread? Raise your hand if you got a piece of a loaf, a piece of bread. Okay. And so how many of you didn't? You can raise your hands too. Yeah, that's pretty much the majority of you did not get bread. Okay, there's about 300 plus in the room. So, I want to show you guys this. This is amazing. The crowd that Jesus fed was not just 5,000 people. It says 5,000 men besides women and children. If we average it out, we have a crowd of about 15,000 people. 15,000 people. We just took five loaves. They didn't make it all the way across the room and fed less than one half of what we have here. So if we have about 300 people in a room that fed less than one, one, 150 people, we fed less than 1% of the crowd present when Jesus performed this miracle with five loaves of bread. I didn't inject fish into the situation. I thought you might appreciate that I didn't inject fish into the situation. Okay? So, 15,000 people we fed or gave bread to less than 1% of that amount with five loaves of bread of what I would say is the appropriate size loaf of bread as well. So in this, you look at this. This is astounding. On its face, the numbers feeding 15,000 with that amount of bread and two fish is indeed a miracle. It's incredible. However, I want to step back. And what I want to do is I want to engage you guys with something a little different because we live in a world that is full of cynicism and doubt. And people that will engage this miracle and say, yeah, well, okay. So what I'm about to give you is maybe a tool for conversation to address this situation if it ever comes up for you. Before I do that, I want to preface this by saying flat out, 100%, I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish and performed an astounding miracle and fed 15,000 people with that amount of food. I believe that's the miracle. However... As you engage with the world, the people will ask the question, well, come on, really, would all these people leave their homes knowing they're going on a trip without bringing food? I'm like, I don't know, I have four kids, I forget a lot of stuff when I leave my house. But maybe they did. Maybe they did bring food. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they brought enough, maybe they brought too little. And maybe they engaged into this teaching and healing environment where they're all gathered together. But I will offer you this. Say as these people sat down... They turned and witnessed Jesus breaking this bread and giving thanks and handing it to the disciples and seeing the disciples start passing it out, realizing, hey, it's dinner time. We're hungry. I'm sure the crowd was hungry. I mean, they hung out all evening. They walked a long way to get where they were. They're hanging out listening to Jesus being healed. I mean, you guys, we've been in, in church, what, it's uh, an hour and ten minutes. Some of you guys were already hungry. These people were hungry. They recognize it's dinner time, but here's what happens when you're hungry. You get selfish. If I only have enough to feed me, that's the first person I want to feed. If I only have enough to feed my family, that's all I'm going to try and feed is my family. But say as people started to look around and seeing people putting in and taking out just what they needed, if each family engaged with that mindset and took what they needed to be satisfied and put more in, so much so that at the end of this, there was plenty left over to go around. Wouldn't it be a miracle if Jesus took 15,000 people who were selfish, hungry consumers and turned them into selfish, hungry sharers? Notice, the need doesn't change. The attitude, the heart does. 
In my mind, that is a miracle. When you take 15,000 people and you change their hearts to serve one another in the midst of a situation where you could rightfully be selfish, that is a miracle. And that miracle meets the same need as the plain-faced expansion of five loaves of bread, multiplication of two fish. It engages the people in the same place. They were hungry and in need. And whether the miracle was a change of attitude or a multiplication of food, the purpose of that miracle remains unchanged. That God saw the needs of people and cared to meet those needs. Now we're moving on. So, so we move on from there. We move into the next miracle that is often talked about in the midst of this situation. So I'm going to introduce you to my other friend. This is the portable whiteboard. I love this. Get ready because I'm about to tell you a really corny joke. We're going to have this morning a PowerPoint presentation where I will take and apply power to the point of the pen. And you will get a presentation. And it should be up there. Yeah, there you go. There it is. This morning we're going to go through the miracle of Jesus and Peter walking on water. And we're going to have some illustration because why not? We can. And I'm an excellent artist. So. As we engage with this, once again, I'm going to be reading you the mashed up version or uh, accounts of John, Mark, and Matthew. If you follow along, starting in uh, Matthew, starting verse 22, we'll be going through this. Try and keep up. Obviously, I'll be all over the map. But here we go. When evening came, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, his disciples went down to the lake. There they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. The boat was already a considerable distance from the land, in the middle of the lake. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. During the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he went out to them. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried in fear, because they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, let let me come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly if you are the son, truly you are the Son of God. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their, because their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret. And anchored there. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So we have this situation. We left off at the last account, Jesus feeding, performing this miracle, feeding all these people. The people are suddenly amazed. Clearly we have a prophet. He's like the prophet. And they start to plot to put Jesus in power. 
Jesus senses this situation and withdraws. Here's where he goes with this, though. He takes the disciples and says, all right, you guys, you've got to go. You've got to get out of here. My question is, okay, why, if you're about to enter this situation where things could get rough, things could get a little tumultuous, do you send the 12 guys that are your closest team members away from you? The answer is actually pretty simple. The disciples are still wrestling with who Jesus is. Heavenly plan versus the earthly plan. The majestic, regal Messiah that's going to overthrow the Romans or God's plan of a humble Savior coming to save the world. They're still caught up in the middle of this. They still don't understand it all. So odds are they would actually complicate the situation and join the crowd and say, yeah, we're going to thrust Jesus into power now. Woo! So Jesus says, no, you guys, you need to go down to the lake and you need to get in a... That's not a good boat. That boat would sink. I do believe that's kind of a block. So that's a little bit better. So he puts the disciples into a boat and there they go. These are the disciples. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. See, there's twelve of them. And they all have one eye now. <laughs> Gotta fix that. Alright, so they don't have any hair, they have two eyes, they're ducked down in the boat. They take off, they're out on the water. And what we don't see in this situation is how Jesus dealt with the crowd. I find this intriguing. Because in the middle of this, you have Jesus saying there's gonna be this Hard situation coming up with this crowd. The crowd wants to thrust me into power. I don't want to be into power. They're going to raise up. And Jesus just says, no, go away. And they all say, okay. That sort of baffles me. So we don't see how he dealt with the crowd, but the crowd clearly went away. And Jesus goes up on a mountainside to pray. And he prays through the evening, late into the night. And then he heads down and he's walking back around the lake to meet the disciples on the other side. And it says, at the fourth watch of the night, so we're late into the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., some point in there, Jesus is off on the shore and he looks out and here's my Jesus. Don't laugh because it's not going to be any better than the disciples. All right, so there's... Jesus is having a bad hair day, all right? So, All right. So we have Jesus standing off on the shore, and he looks out and he sees the disciples. The wind and the waves are up. They're struggling against the oars. Jesus says, all right, got to go help the guys out. They're having a rough time. Wait a minute. No boat. No boat? No problem. We'll just walk out on the water. So Jesus heads out. To give the disciples a hand. And as they see him coming, they're ducked down in the boat. As you can clearly see, is displayed here. The historical accuracy of my drawings is not to be trifled with. They're ducked down in the boat. They're afraid. They see Jesus walking out on the water. And I love the fact that their fallback position is to freak out and say, it's a ghost. Okay, I get it. You're on the boat. You look out. You see a guy out for a moonlight stroll. Not too uncommon unless you're in the middle of a lake. But a ghost? It's a ghost. Now see, here's where I think Jesus displays incredible patience. Because if these were my guys, and this is what I was stuck with, I would look at them and say, really? A ghost? Really? You guys are idiots. I'm leaving. You're on your own. And I'd be down at the disciple depot saying, I need 12 new disciples. My others had a boating accident. Sorry. 
But he looks when they say this, and he reaches out. He looks past their fear and their misunderstanding and says, Take courage. It is I. It's me. It's Jesus. Oh, okay. Well, except for Peter, right? In the midst of this, you have Peter who pops his head up and says, Lord, if that's you, then tell me to come out on the water to you. Again, Jesus continues to display incredible patience. Because if I were Jesus, I'd be like, no, Peter, we don't have time for this. Really? I'm standing out here on the water. You're looking at me. I just told you it's me. We see clearly it's me. Yet you want to come walk on the water. Great. No, Peter, sit down. I'm coming into the boat. Remember, this is the Jesus that says to Thomas, yes, you can feel my hands. Yes, you can stick your hand in my side. Absolutely. If you need reassurance, I will be there for you. I will meet you where you're at. I will respond to this, not with selfishness, not with annoyance, not with, no, we don't have time for this. No, I will stop and take time. And he looks at Peter and he says, fine, come. And this is amazing. This next scene amazes me. What we don't quite see is how Peter gets out of the boat. We don't know if Peter's white knuckling the side of the boat, like touching the water going, "Ah, I'm not sure if this is, wow, okay, it works. Or if Peter just goes right over the side, which obviously we know that he can do because we see that later in in John where Jesus restores him and he jumps out of the fishing boat. It's the Lord. It pulls a Forrest Gump move, jumps out and he swims ashore. But the idea is that we don't see how Peter moves, but you guys, Peter moves. Jesus calls and Peter moves. And I'm not sure, but you guys, I think if we move, whether white-knuckling the side of the boat or going wholesale overboard, when we move, when Jesus calls, we find ourselves in the position of doing amazing things. Suddenly, we're standing in the position of doing something amazing at Jesus' calling. And Peter finds himself absolutely walking on the water toward Jesus. I know Peter doesn't have any eyes or mouth. It's okay. He finds himself walking out toward Christ, doing something amazing. But then Peter has an epiphany. I'm in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a storm. And he looks around and he sees the wind and the waves and he's unnerved. So what happens? I don't have time to draw Peter down, so the water is going to come up and get Peter. Peter starts sinking. Peter takes his eyes off, starts to get unnerved, and he starts to sink. But before we get too caught up in that, you guys, I love Peter's reaction. Jesus, save me! It says, when he saw the wind and waves, he was afraid, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me! He immediately turns to the one source that can lift him up out of his troubles. He turns to Christ. Jesus, save me. Get me out of this mess. Is that your response when you're sinking? In the midst of times where we're doing something amazing, undoubtedly our faith will be shaken. We're human. We have flesh. Our flesh has limitations. Our faith will be shaken. And in the midst of this situation, Jesus comes face to face understanding that the faith of the people that follow after him is indeed flawed. And Peter cries out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. 
Would you? Or would you turn to yourself? Or are you going to check in with Dr. Phil or Oprah or whatever the world's selling you this week to solve your problems? Or will you turn to Christ? Because the response is amazing from Christ. Immediately. How fast? Immediately. Jesus reached out His hand and caught Him. Immediately. And He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now this question spurns all kinds of debate. Because in our minds we like to say, ooh, Peter's in trouble. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys right now. In studying this, the Greek connotation of this phrase does not bear any harshness to it. It's a simple question. One that you might find asked in compassion and care. Peter, why did you even take your eyes off me in the first place? Peter, come on. And he lifts him up out of the water. And you remember, they walk back across the water to the boat. They get back in the boat. There's no lecture. There's no Jesus wagging his finger in Peter's face. You dummy. Why would you do that? That's just lame. He simply says, why did you take your eyes off me? Didn't you know that I had you? Didn't you know that I was there with you? And I was there for you? They get back in the boat. The wind and the waves die down. And the disciples, amazed at all this. Now, I want to also point out really quick. Remember, Peter was the only disciple to get out of the boat. Before we go bashing him for his lack of faith. He was the only one on the water. And they get back in the boat and they stand there and they look at Jesus like, Clearly, truly, you are the Son of God. And you just hear Jesus going, Are you sure this time? Because you've said it before, you've said it now, you'll say it again. We keep seeming to go through this cycle of belief. And don't we all? I believe Jesus saves. Kind of. Maybe today, maybe not tomorrow. I'm not sure. You are the Son of God for now. Sure, whatever. We're very flippant in our beliefs. We seem to take what we like for now and then toss it aside when it doesn't seem to work for us. Because witnessing this and understanding that God is who He is, can't we agree that we serve a great Savior? And in the end of this passage is a nugget you may miss. If you're just trying to get to the end of the passage, you're trying to close out this chapter and move on to the next, you might miss this. It says the boat lands at Genesaret. And here's what happens. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret. And then when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. So they landed Genesaret. The guys see Jesus, they're like, Jesus, yeah, it's miracle time. Go get the kinfolk. And they send out messengers, and suddenly there's another mob sitting in front of Jesus wanting something from Him. To which again, He displays His incredible character. Because I would be tempted to say, I'm sorry, do you know what I've been through tonight? Do you see these guys over here? Yeah, the wet shivering ones? Yeah, I, really, I don't even want to explain. I'm just tired and I'm hungry. I had to walk across the lake. I need some porridge and a bed, or porridge and a tree, or porridge and a rock. I don't care. I want sleep and food. Miracles later. But instead, Spagnis Nomai moved with compassion for these people. They're ill and infirmed. They're lame. And it says all who touched him were healed. Yes, clearly, in a 
world that is broken and dying and lost, that is in need of a Savior named Jesus, don't you think it's convenient that we know Him? And that people need to know that He cares. He wants to meet needs. He wants to be involved and engaged. All last weekend was completely about that. Our response to God's calling on this church in this year of world impact to go across the world and meet people's needs and share with them the fact that God cares. Cares enough to send His people. You guys remember a few weeks ago we talked about we're the plan. Hold your hands open with what little you have. Give it to Jesus and let Jesus send you into a place to perform the miracles He's doing it daily. That we would go out into the world and display, not just tell, but display the fact that God cares for the people that inhabit His world. Let's pray. God, this morning I thank You for Your Word. God, above all of this, I thank You that You care. Your Word tells us to cast our anxieties on You because You care. God, let us not make that a convenient thing that we can hold on to that makes us feel safe and comfortable, but God, that we would take that news into the world that needs it so badly. That we would stop just screaming from the mountaintops to everybody, hey, come up here and meet our God, that we would take you down the mountain. God, as we go this morning, help us to wrestle with, to engage with what you've shared with us this morning. God, whatever I said that is useless, just cast it to the side. But God, that the truth of your word would take root in our hearts and change our lives so that we may be agents of change in the lives around us. We ask all of this humbly in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.